0: We are now on Parsha Pinchas. Everyone is is there with us. Parsha Pinchas, and to the best of my knowledge, uh, Rabbi Bernstein explained that she teaches on a triennial basis. Um, so, right, so that we're in the third part of the Torah portion this year, and as a Newer rabbi, that is a bummer sometimes because sometimes the best stuff is in like year one or two. But what a great challenge to be able to look at year three. And I'll give you a perfect example is this parsha. So who knows who can tell me something about Pinchas? Anyone know what this portion is roughly about? Okay.
1: <laughs> Alright.
0: Okay. 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 Okay, yeah. I'm getting I'm getting I'm getting some like classic good good answers back. But what about Pinchas from our Bible? Let's go to that Pinchas. So Pinchas is a character that's famous for killing people. Which is a really odd space to start with, right? Pinchas is this zealot that is so zealous that he sees two people being too publicly affectionate, and he throws a staff, and it goes through a spear, and it goes through both their hearts. That's the character of Pinchas, which is a really odd, like, first of all, it's a difficult namesake at that point, because you're like, oh, what are you famous for? Spearing people. That's not, you know, exactly what we want. But also it's tricky because this parsha is called Pinchas, and it starts with a recapping of that very story, of the, of the throwing the spear, but then it quickly moves into completely different, like, theories and stories and parts. So the sec- so that's the first triennial. So look forward to that next year. Come back for Pinchas. We'll talk about Spears in the Heart, right? That'll be uh, exciting stuff. Yes. I'm not familiar with
1: that word, triennial.
0: Triennial So our Torah is long Now it's not that long The Torah is basically the length of the first Harry Potter book And for anyone who knows the Harry Potter series Number one is like a joke compared to seven, right? Like, you're like, number one, that's a short read But that's our Torah It's roughly 80,000 words So it's not that long But it is rather long, A, when you're studying it in another text, in another language. And B, to not be able to focus in on certain pieces, what we've done is, as a tradition, we've created a triennial system. So there's three years to read a single portion. So in year one, they read uh, Numbers 25 to uh, 27. Year two is 27 to 28 and, and a half. And year three is 28 verse 16 to chapter 30. And so in this third year, what we're supposed to dive deep in is the last portion of it. That way, let's say you were looking at the the Torah portion that has the Shema. If you didn't study on a triennial, what do you think we would study every single year we got to it? Same thing. We'd look at the Shema. Why wouldn't we? We'd look at the Song of the Sea every single time. Because why wouldn't we? These are like really exciting pieces. The Ten Commandments. We would never skip it and we would end up skipping chapters of important information contextualizing it.
1: So, so we divide every, every, every section, every, every parsha into three
0: parts. With one exception. So Parsha hazinu is a poem. And it's a poem. So when the rabbis decide to split into this triennial, they said, how are we going to break up a poem? We can't break up a poem. That, that it, would, it, it doesn't it work doesn't right. So HaZinu, which is often right before Rosh Hashanah or in between the two holidays or right after Yom Kippur, is the poem that Moses reads to the people. That is read in full every year. Um, And I only know that because it was my father and my Torah portion, so I act like I know all that by heart. But honestly, hazin is just a very special portion to me. And I had to do the whole thing for my bar mitzvah without any triennial breaking, so that was a bummer. Um,
1: And the other thing with the Torah is that the intensity is such in every section that if you just scanned over the bar shah, you'd miss the intensity that we unpack every week. In each of the triennial
0: parts. Well, that's exactly right. When I say it's the length of Harry Potter, the difference being for every three words in Hebrew, we could have three paragraphs of English to unfold it. So you have to break it down and look at the smaller pieces if you really want to dive deep and understand what there is to learn. Um, so, But going back to Pinchas, the reason that it's such an interesting triennial piece, year one, the story of Pinchas, wrestling with whether or not you like this character. Year two, you've just had this character uh, of Zaloha who is introduced in the portion and three lines later passes away. And the reason this happens is the whole second year of our triennial is based on his five daughters going to Moses and saying, your rules are outdated. They're already a problem. Now, if I'm going to choose a part of the triennial to read, I want to read that. The five daughters of Zalohephed go to the guy in charge and say, you're doing something backwards. Moses goes to God. And what does God say? They're right. Change it. Change the laws. Now that's crucially important because there are parts of Judaism that believe that laws are not changeable, that you can't make adjustments to Judaism based on need. But this Torah portion literally spells out the process of making change. And then in a few weeks from now, we're going to go back to the same story when some people from the tribe of Manasseh say, "Okay, wait, you let the daughters have property. What if they go marry men from other tribes? Then we have a problem. And you see the human aspect of playing out what happens when divine law changes. So it's a fascinating read. And then we have year three. We turn to chapter 28. So who can turn to chapter 28 and read for me? I think it's verse 16. Numbers 28. It's after Balak, yeah. It's after Chukat too. 978.
2: 978,
0: okay. That's an interesting question. I don't know many Pinchas, but Should I know a couple. Penchas? Yeah? My
1: son is Pinchas. Did you
0: know? I didn't. What, now, when you chose his namesake, what were you choosing? I love that.
1: Because of his, his grandmother, when, before Pinchas was born, his grandmother insisted that he be called after his her spouse, who had just died. So Pinchas is the name of her grand, grand, grandfather. And the grandmother was, not, she insisted that he be named after him.
0: No. And he's risen above that name and made a very different, very different history of the name Penchas. All right.
1: And he was born in America, and his name is Philip. Now we call him Pinchas Pinky, but officially his name, English wise, he's Philip. But he's really Pinchas.
0: And Pinky. Pinky. I like that. Pinchas Pinky. Pinky. Yeah. Pinky. 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 I know. I was about to say the same thing. Good thinking. Yeah, it's it's like it's like a very rated PG gangster name. Like, no, no, it's not all bad. Correct. Well, that's and that's and that's the interesting part that I'm trying not to go too far into because I'm tempted by the non-triennial system. But Pinchas, who does commit this well, it's not even a crime because the reason that he's doing it theoretically is following God's law that may make us squeamish. Pinchas goes on to have a very important role in the Israelite people, right? He becomes high priest. So it is a very important name, but the controversy of it all must be saved for next year. So instead, we go to chapter 28, verse 16. So who can begin reading for me? On the
1: first month? Yeah. That's the one. On the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, there shall be a Passover sacrifice to Adonai, and on the fifteenth day of that month, a festival. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. The first day shall be sacred occasion. You shall not work at your occupation. You shall present an offering by fire, a burnt offering to Adonai, two bulls of the herd, one ram, and seven yearling lambs. See that they are without blemish.
0: Okay, now jump to verse 26.
1: On the day... On the day of the first fruits, your feast of weeks, when you bring an offering of new grain to the to Adonai, you shall observe a sacred occasion. You shall not work at your occupations.
0: Okay, now jump to chapter 29, verse 1.
1: On the seventh month of the first day of the month, you shall observe a sacred occasion... You shall not work at your occupation.
0: Okay, perfect. So what are we talking about in these different pieces? We're back to high holidays. Every time we turn around. Now we we went from Pinchas and the complication of a namesake to women standing up against the entire patriarchal decision-making process and having God change God's mind. And now we're talking about Passover, Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur again. So you can see on a triennial basis, one might say... We missed Spears Through the Heart and the Me Too movement starting in Torah era, and now, now we're at Yom Kippur again? We've got two months before we have to deal with Yom Kippur, right? That The high holidays don't start until the end of September. So why would we start reading this now? <coughs> to prepare ourselves, right? Anyone who thinks that's a process done in a weekend is wrong. Right, it takes it takes lots of time to get prepared properly for the high holidays. But why else? Why would we be talking about these pieces?
1: Well, they're never in sync. I mean, every time I read the triennial. No, no, no. But I mean, when the Moses, the story of Moses, it doesn't come at Passover time. Correct. So.
0: Why should anything else? Go? Oh, no, right. Well, yeah, <laughs> trying to understand the calendar of Judaism is a five-year rabbinical school task that fails. So you can't, <laughs> you can't fully understand the process. But what I'm saying here is we are very intentional about the splitting of each parsha, right? If it really didn't belong here, cut the portion early and roll Pinchas into the next chapter. But, and so why do we have this as part of the story of Pinchas? What's been going on so far? We've been looking at the moral character of people and their ability to interact within the system. It's so now.
1: Variation on the theme.
0: Yeah, it's for sure a variation on the theme. And the, the variation piece that we're getting to now is what is it like? What is a voice? Pinchas makes a statement with his action. The daughters of Zaloha Fed make a statement with their action. Well, what we haven't read yet, but it's coming with this same theme, is that we're about to talk about the shofar. And what's the shofar? A voice. It's a voice. It's essentially the mitzvah for Rosh Hashanah. And yet, there is an opportunity at times for us to omit it. So let's start by looking at why. Like, why would we think about the, the the shofar as the voice? Right? Why is it a voice?
1: What well, sound?
0: Okay. Point A. It's sound. What else?
1: Calls people together.
0: Okay. I like to call it the high holiday alarm clock. So it definitely gathers people. Yeah. So the
3: shofar sounded. Um, it it reaches the ears of everyone who's settled there and each one gets their own message and and their
2: own meaning in the sound of the shofar
1: And, and isn't it also a warning the blast of a horn is usually a warning as well as a calling
0: so yeah take that a step further in societies all throughout history The blast of a horn is served as a warning. And it can be used for that in Judaism. But the primary function of a shofar in Judaism is a, not a warning, but a reminder of upcoming celebration, right? When I was living in Jerusalem in 2013, it was one of the years that global warming doesn't exist, right? It snowed in the middle of Jerusalem, a city that has one snowplow for how often it snows in the entire city. It snowed so badly, the whole city shut down for three days. Yeah. Okay, And I was living close enough to the wall that uh, when it started snowing, my wife and I ran to a store and bought boots because we didn't have anything for weather we bought boots and really thick socks, and we went back home. And so when everything shut down, we could walk. So we put on our boots and our socks, and we walked down to the old city, and we found that the hotel, the Western Wall, was empty. So empty, in fact, that a group of us, of both men and women, were able to take a picture on the men's side because there was no one praying there. So we weren't bothering anyone, and we had a picture taken. Which all of us together, which was on my Facebook, somehow ended up at the Reform Movement's biennial on like a 30-foot screen. Because, because I think it's probably the first time in a number of years that men and women have stood together in one side of the coattail, right? Which was a, was a symbolic thing. But the reason I'll never forget that day wasn't a picture we took on my iPhone. When we first got there, we went to a balcony that overlooks the coattail. And there was a man that walked out with a massive three-foot shofar and just blasted the horn as loud as he could. And someone in my group said, why would he do that? What is this? This isn't, we're not near Slichot. We're not near high holidays. This is December. But he was blasting the horn to say, it's snowing at the hotel, right? This is a moment to see. And no one was there to see it. So he took the blast and he used it as a reminder of a momentous occasion. Get out here. See what it looks like to have snowfall in the old city. And that's what we use the shofar for more than anything else. We use it as a blast for occasions to remember, places to celebrate, moments to be incredibly present. It is, of course, able to be used for other pieces, but that's where Judaism differs from other um, societies through history, is that the shofar blast was used not only for the warning of war, but also for the like wake-up call and reminder of like living your life. Yeah?
3: So... Um With that argument, with what you told us about um, the different uh, holidays where you should not work, why is the shofar not sounded on the first day of Pesach? Um, It's only sounded on the high holidays, but it sounds like the first day of Pesach is a a fairly momentous um, uh, occasion.
0: So let's let's I, I will get to that answer and I'm gonna do a super rabbinic roundabout way. Is that okay? <laughs> What's the first month of the Hebrew calendar?
4: Nisan.
3: Oh
0: Nisan. Nisan. What holiday is it Nisan? Nisan. Yes, what do we call our new year? Rosh Hashanah. When is Rosh Hashanah?
1: January. Well
0: it's yeah. in the seventh month. We read it just now, right? In the on the fifteenth day of the seventh month is Yom Kippur. How do we have a high holiday celebration on the seventh month of the calendar? That would be us saying, Happy New Year in July. Doesn't that seem kind of crazy? Why? Why does Nisan the first month, and yet we don't celebrate the high holiday, the, the new year until the seventh month, and one of the trickiest parts of it is, that's because Judaism has four, high, four New Years. Not one, not two, Four. So let's name the four. We have Rosh Hashanah. We have Pesach. Say the next one. So it's Shavuot. And the last one is Tu Bishvat. Which is the one that everyone's like, huh? But it makes sense. New Year's of trees, let them go through a cycle. New Year's of the reflection of the exodus. Let us go through a cycle. The New Year of reminder of self-reflection, that's where we have our high holiday. And the fourth one's for cattle. It's less exciting. The reason that it matters that we have multiple New Year's is because we're not na- claiming that one is more important than the rest. I know that like society has done that with the way we've elevated Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are meant for self-reflection. Right? How many New Year's resolutions have been not what I'm going to do, but owning what I did wrong? Right? And that's the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur process, and that's why the shofar is used in that moment.
1: When does Shavuot fall?
0: Seven weeks after Pesach. Yeah.
1: Okay, so it's birthing. It's what? It's birthing. Correct. You,
0: right. Well, the, there's there's the right.
1: And lambs and all. That's when the animals are born in spring.
0: Right. But, but the part that's confusing, and that actually might be the simple answer, and I'm overcomplicating it, is how this holiday that we associate to the, the birth of the, the tradition is also with the cattle and with the different livestock. But the reason that the shofar is blown is because a holiday needs a symbol, right? And if you don't have the symbols, it makes it really hard psychologically to connect to the holiday. So Pesach has its symbol, right? It's matzah. We have a symbol. And not only is it a symbol, we all feel it, right? By like day six, that's a very strong symbol, right? It's a, lot of, it's a lot of matzah, right? So you need the shofar to be our symbol for the other high holiday to lift it up and elevate it to this level. Now, here's where I think it gets really interesting. The shofar is considered the mitzvah of Rosh Hashanah, Right? It's the major symbol of the holiday. So, just for the sake of making a point about which day the holiday falls, is there ever a time in which we don't blow the shofar? On Shabbat. On Shabbat. Why? It's work. Okay. Is it, who here knows how to blow a shofar? <laughs> does, it, does it feel like much work? Maybe the whole set, but does it feel like much work to blow the shofar? Mine does work. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if you're not very, if you're if you're still learning to use that specific shofar, it might yeah, have some difficulties. Um, I'm not a good shofar blower, so every year it's, it kind of like raspberries out at the end. It's a really, really. You keep learning
1: the person and
0: not the shofar. Well, for me, my shofar is a really easy shofar to blow. Wow. It, it is literally the person, but there are difficult shofars, right? But but why do you really think we're not blowing the shofar on Shabbat? Is it- We do, right? We sing. We still say our prayers. I mean, what do you think is harder, blowing the shofar or not drinking water for 25 hours? Right? So it can't be the difficulty. Why are we not blowing the shofar on Shabbat?
1: Because it's meant to be introspection, and the shofar is out, outer demand.
0: Say more about that.
1: Well, Shabbat, you're supposed to withdraw into wholeness. You don't need something outside yeah, to remind you to should. do
0: that. Okay. If it's
1: calling people to of a, a, a events, we're not we're not thinking about events. We're thinking about self reflection. Okay. No, but Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are self reflection also. So. They are, it's, yeah, but in a group. But, but Shabbat comes every week and as part of our I every, mean, you know. And maybe, maybe it would cheapen it, if it were our every important. Shabbat, too. If it were ordinary every week, it wouldn't have the same impact
0: as it does. You're talking about the high holiday piece. Right. For sure, I agree there. Um, though I will say, it's interesting. The psychology of if you do something too often, it becomes normalized, gets challenged with Shabbat. Because the more you do Shabbat, I feel like the more spirit and like a feeling and emotion actually is drawn into the day, right? The more I observe Shabbat, the more I actually feel that rest. Each week, it it almost builds on top of itself. But so we have a few different pieces here. We have self-reflection. We have self-reflection in actually being a public thing, right? We have the idea of Shabbat having work, but there's another piece to it. And all these pieces are good, by the way. They all make sense. You have to find a rational reason to withhold this mitzvah of the holiday,
1: you just said something very interesting too. You, you talked about doing Shabbat. I think you are being Shabbat, not okay. doing Shabbat. We're human beings, not human doings. And Shabbat is a is a being, not a doing. And blowing a
0: shofar, shofar
1: is a is a doing. You don't write. You don't. You don't do. You
0: be. So what would we say about reading Torah? The person who's listening to Torah might actually have the being aspect, right? They're being consumed by the words of Torah. But what about the person reading? Well, Are they doing or being? Yes. Okay. I see what you did there. Right? So it's, it's, I, I hear you, and I, and I can appreciate that reframing of Shabbat. I actually think Shabbat in this moment is a tool. Right? In this very moment, I don't think there's actually an issue with blowing the shofar on Shabbat. Because like I said, if Yom Kippur falls on Shabbat and my Shabbat experience is eating challah and lighting candles and having a nice glass of wine, none of that Manischewitz shenanigans, right? But having a nice glass of wine and sitting with my family, I can't do that on Yom Kippur. It literally strips away part of my Shabbat experience. So I, I'm not sure that it's that piece But something that I really have grown to love in an explanation is that the absence of shofar on Shabbat is a statement of the occasional uh, relative unimportance of symbols in Judaism. Judaism has symbols, lots of them. We use them for every holiday. We use them for every experience. However, symbols are actually considered to be a slippery slope in the monotheistic system because you go from a symbol... To a pennant. You go from a pennant to a statue. A statue creeps into an idol, and an idol becomes pushed back against God.
1: That's Mayor Gordon's whole thesis about right. symbolism.
0: And yet we use symbols in Judaism because we understand the psychological impact of having tangible things to hold on to for each holiday. And the shofar might be one of the strongest symbols in our tradition. When you said doing versus being, all I can think is when I sit and someone who can really blast the shofar, blast it, I literally feel it inside of me. It penetrates right through because of the way, how strong of a sound it is. So I find it to be an incredibly impactful experience. But by withholding it on Shabbat, what are we saying? We're saying it's still Rosh Hashanah. We're still going through introspection. We are the same people with the same process and the same needs. The symbol was important. It is not so important that we lose the holiday without it. Right? It's not imperative. And that's a really important statement because what is the only imperative notion in all of Judaism? There's one. It's a hint. One. God. God's the only imperative notion in Judaism. There is God. Now, however you wrestle with that idea of there being God, fine. But the, the reason that the tradition makes this statement of pulling back symbols from time to time is because we don't want to get so hung up on the shofar that we refer, forget the person, the, the entity we're actually having a conversation with during Rosh Hashanah is God, not a ram's horn. And if we never have a moment of pulling back from that, then we don't have the opportunity to recognize the actual subject that's so important. Yes?
4: Rabbi, is there some way one can approach the notion of the Quran um, by way of understanding that it's of the horn of the sheep, something that unites us with the world of the cattle and with the world of the sheep?
0: Can you repeat the beginning of the question?
4: Well, I, 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 I can't divorce the musical function from the origin.
0: Got it. Okay.
4: And the origin is the, it's the music made from the ram's horn. It's the last in some senses of animate creation. And it's especially involved obviously in the great, greater case. But is there a sense in which the uh, in which Shabbat tries to break away or, or more from the world of the ram and the world of flocks. This is, in some sense, is part of a, of a dichotomy between spirituality of, um, of Shabbat on the one hand, the physicality. and the physicality in the sense of corporate identity and the oneness with the flocks which contributes to the importance of the
0: Shabbat. So that's a really, uh, it's a fascinating question to propose because there's there's two different immediately my, my mind goes to two different spots. The first which is of course dealing with cattle, dealing with livestock is a very grueling, sometimes aggravating, backbreaking work. And at some point you have to separate yourself from that to remind yourself that that we are different. We are betselem Elohim. What makes us more like God than the cattle are the ability to stop what we do, make it different on that day, not not interact with that part of the system. In fact, the rules of Shabbat state that you rest, your slaves rest, your house guests rest, and who else rests? Your animals animals rest. rest. It doesn't say anything about the cows lighting the candles. I think that would get a little bit dangerous. But the cows certainly rest, right? The cattle are supposed to rest. The livestock are supposed to rest. So I do think there's that one side, which is that which we get from animal, we have to take a break from.
1: But you still do have to milk the cows.
0: Well, for their, for their own safety. yeah. But what's the flip side? The flip side is a conversation I had with Rabbi Hyman a few months ago, in which I had a, probably the 19 millionth Jew ask me, why can't I have chicken and cheese? I can't milk a chicken, why can't I eat chicken and cheese? I get this question every single year, without fail. All different age groups, everyone wants to know, if I can't milk a chicken, why can't I have chicken parm? Right? Why can't I have chicken parm? And so, I had this conversation with Rabbi Hyman, and he said to me, he said, there's an interesting story that Rav Kook in in Israel was a vegetarian. But on Shabbat, he would have a thimble worth of meat and the reason was the rabbis teach of this tradition that Shabbat is supposed to be an elevated meal and if you don't have the money for meat on a regular occasion the way you elevate your meal is you have meat right that's what the original idea the rabbis had of a Shabbos meal was to have a meat meal so that it was a, a more elegant royal meal because the kings ate meat every night so we were to all be like royalty on Shabbat now Here's the problem. Steak is expensive. Beef is not cheap. What's cheaper than meat? Poultry. Poultry is totally cheaper than meat. And so the rabbis are now worried that those in the lower socioeconomic class won't be able to partake in this royalty of eating on Shabbat. So what do they do? They say, chickens are now meat. And suddenly, those who couldn't afford the meat for Shabbat now can afford to eat poultry on Shabbat. And by making everyone not eat chicken and cheese, you allow those in a lower socioeconomic group to partake in the same holiness of the tradition. Now, I don't know if that changes anyone's mind about chicken parm. But for me... That settled the question about why I don't eat chicken and cheese together.
1: Is that a supposition story, or did that happen?
0: That is the rabbi's, that's the rabbi's ruling. Okay. That, that there was this, that's how chicken becomes part of the, okay. part of the tradition. Um, it's interesting, why stop a chicken, right? And it's even more interesting, you want to see that play out in real life. When America first became a country, we gave subsidies to certain kinds of farmers, mainly corn. Corn became so highly subsidized in this country that we find that corn is in a ton of products, right? Well, when Israel was being created, Ben-Gurion used the model of the American system to make sure that there were certain groups that would have subsidies to encourage growth of their sectors. And the the group he chose was chicken and turkey. So turkey in Israel is mind-bogglingly cheap compared to other meat because of how highly subsidized it is. And the reason that's done is because the rabbis have already deemed it meat so that other people can afford it. So Ben-Gurion goes even further and says, let's make it even cheaper. There's going to be people who can't afford their poultry on Shabbat. And at that point, it makes a lot of sense. I don't need to mix chicken and cheese if it means more people have access to the dignity of their Shabbat. That's
1: very interesting. Yeah, <laughs>
0: And now that we're this far down the wormhole, we'll go one step further into American changes of Judaism. The turkey. Ben-Gurion used the turkey, right? But where are turkeys native? The U.S. And when the Jews first get to America, they have a problem. There's this bird running around with a weird thing on its chin. Doesn't quite look like a chicken, but it certainly looks more like a chicken than an eagle. And so they write back to the rabbis in Europe and say... Can we eat this? Remember, for anyone who's studied the laws of kashrut, unlike other animals, mammals, for instance, where we have, here are the qualifications, X, Y, Z, birds we have, here's the list. If they're not on the list, are they kosher? No. The whole list is found. And they say, okay, but it, maybe it's a cousin of the turkey. I mean, of the chicken. Is turkey just chicken's cousin? And they write to the rabbis, and the rabbis don't get back to them. And this is actually part of the origins of American Judaism, and the rabbinical school is here. They finally deem Turkey is kosher. Why? Because they just started this American experience. And what holiday rolls around?
3: Thanksgiving.
0: And the Jews need to partake in this tradition to be a part of the society. George Washington had a great relationship with the Jews. The Jews showed that they were a huge, they were a motivated and loyal part of this new government. So, suddenly, the turkey becomes kosher. So Lochafed's daughter's story comes back again, right? You can change the laws of Judaism with rational, logical thinking. Now, the turkey is kosher because the American Jews, the state of Israel becomes a place and some guy named Ben-Gurion makes them the cheapest product in the state of Israel. You want to talk about the effect that American Judaism has on Judaism all around the world? The cheapest product of meat in Israel is the American bird. And that's because what matters is the substance, is the context, is the meaning, not the symbol. Right? It goes right back to the shofar. It's the blast, sure, but it's the meaning behind it. It's the introspection. It's why we're doing it. Because, quite frankly, I know plenty of vegetarians who have lovely vegetarian Shabbat meals. But the idea was, if you wanted access to that royal opportunity, you had to have it. And if meat was so expensive, we had to find a solution. And it's, Turkey
1: will never be a graven image.
0: No. Yeah. It's too delicious. It also means hodu. Hodu in Hebrew is turkey. That also means thanks. So, uh, yeah. But that's because I'm thankful for all the turkey I eat. So, what? India. Yeah, and it means India. Very confusing. It's very confusing. Thanks and India and uh, turkey.
1: And when you said um, about cheese, uh, no, no, uh,
0: Chicken parm. Is anyone hungry now? Sorry about that. I shouldn't yeah. use chicken farm as an example. The reason for, for chicken and cheese not being used together, even though you can't milk a chicken, is that chicken is, uh, economically speaking, less expensive than meat. And it allowed those who want to interact with the idea of having a meat meal, they can now have a poultry meal and have the same feelings of, of completion of that. And so, that's
1: the reason why? Jesus.
0: That's exactly right. That's now the other solution you'll be told is that the rabbis like to build gates. Have you heard of this notion? Build gates and gates and gates around laws of the Torah. They were worried that if you were eating chicken it might look like meat, someone might think you're eating meat. I don't know about you, but chicken looks nothing like meat. And beyond burgers today, those you know those they look like meat. Right? They, they look like real meat, and they're synthetic. right? So I'm not sure that the marit-ayin idea, the, 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 con- the conflict of the eye, I'm not sure that's a fair uh, reason. But that is the other explanation you'll get. And that's the one I really wrestled with. And when Rabbi Hyman and I were studying, and he explained this notion of being a socioeconomic justice standpoint, I can sit with that a lot better. So when you say Shabbat is a divorce from the livestock, it really puts me in two very different spots, which is, yes, it needs to be a separation of working with the livestock, and the very work you're doing is supposed to bear the fruits of elevating your Shabbat experience. And so that's a really nice wrestling. And yeah, the
1: should... know, that shouldn't been work by laying eggs on Shabbat and
0: stuff like that. Well, so that's where we get... That's, no, no, no. This is a really good point, right? The same as milking a cow. Of course, except that goes right back to B'Tselem Elohim. If we are different than the animals because we're made in the image of God, we can abstain from doing something we consider work. An animal that does not have free will has to keep doing what it does. Right? It has to lay... It, the, the chicken has to lay the egg right it, it, they the have to, the yeah they, to not lay the correct yeah. and for the cow <laughs> yeah. right that's like going on a 15 hour flight and choosing not to use the bathroom it's a bad idea right like the chicken's got to lay the egg same with the cow has to be milked Is
4: a baby human baby that's born in Shabbat, Shabbat does that have any special meaning
0: special meaning
4: well, if a chicken can't
0: lay an egg. But a mom goes, yeah, does, does mom get like, Shabbat, like double Shabbat for life if she has to go through labor on Shabbat? That's a very good question. My wife went into labor on a Thursday, so I am not on the hook for that. Um, but but that's a really good question. The one is, what happens eight days into a, a baby boy's life? What shouldn't you be able to do based on the rules of Shabbat? Because you can't cut. Cutting is one of the prohibitions. However, can you have a bris on Shabbat? Because Brist trumps Shabbat. So so but
1: life always trumps anything else.
0: And yet here we have a good example of if it's not life, if it isn't at that level, the shofar can be skipped because it's just a symbol.
5: But it's not just life. It's also the init- it's the original covenant.
0: Correct.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: And so if Shabbat yeah. is yeah. one of the I mean, covenants I mean, of the I mean, of I mean, people, I mean, how I mean, are you supposed I mean, to usurp the original covenant for the secondary covenant?
1: That's another instance of the symbol of having to have the proper place in the hierarchy of importance.
4: What is the rabbinical ruling on uh, uh, the substitute meats in the, the tofu?
0: So, uh, there was a great article last year, maybe two years ago now, uh, about lab-grown meats. And uh, the article was basically proposing, it was was an orthodox rabbi saying, so I'm going to eat bacon soon. Right? If it's lab-grown, if you grow pork and it is not born from a pig, is it pork? (laughs) No. Right. In which case, if it isn't born from a pig and it is not a pig, is it kosher to eat? If they, if they produce the meat without ever having hooves to begin with, then we can't check the hooves. Right.
5: think focus on Right. But, on the, well,
0: <laughs> I realize so it has yeah. nothing to do
5: with what we're talking yeah. about.
0: Oh, Pinchas has allowed us to open up into all kinds of fun directions but today.
5: presumably, one of the issues with... I, I, I certainly agree that that lab-grown bacon is... I'm, I'm fine with it. But let's suppose you are observant, and you're sitting next next to somebody who orders a, a Beyond BLT. Yeah. Okay. Now you're going to have all kinds of you know your your Yeezah hurrah is going to be going crazy. Correct. As to what is this guy doing eating a, a Beyond BLT, and and is and is the and is that is and is would, is it conceivable that you could have a ruling that would say that a Beyond BLT is not kosher simply because you want to avoid all that surahs for the people who are watching people eating what they think is
0: bacon. So if you're a believer of the rabbinic rule of gates and gates and gates around the fences and fences and fences around the Torah and you believe that the reason that we don't mix chicken and cheese is because someone looked over and saw someone having a glass of milk with chicken and thought that might be a cow, which again, questionable if you can't tell the difference, we have a larger issue, <laughs> right? But, but if it's because of that, then sure here's the problem what about a veggie patty? I've been eating veggie patties with cheese melted on top of them since I chose to keep kosher at 13. That was like the first switch I made. Can't have cheeseburgers? I'm ordering veggie patties now. But veggie patties have been looking more and more like meat this whole time. So the question becomes, in a society in which we can tell the difference, does that iron, that influence of evil eye, Does that qualify as reason enough to withhold from doing something? And I'm not sure that I'm comfortable with the notion that my observances are going to be first and foremost affected by how they appear to look to someone else. But that is a part of our tradition. So you said it's far off from Pinchas, but it's not we're talking about the high holidays we're talking about times that we admit parts of it maybe the reason for no shofar was because it would complicate and confuse someone because you have to do what? you got to bring the shofar from your house to the meeting place and that would mean that you had to what? carry it you had to carry it so maybe this is all a Shabbat rule
3: uh, well, what, on the other hand
0: what if you leave it at the synagogue because you're a good planner Yeah. on
3: the other hand we're commanded to hear the sound of the shofar
0: correct We are, but that's the whole point. We are commanded to hear it. And yet, we do not sound the shofar on Shabbat. And that's in Pinchas. And the reason being, because we have to make sure that no action, no symbol becomes so important that it trumps Shabbat. Because what is Shabbat? God's day of rest. And that's our most sacred interaction to God is experiencing God's day of rest. So if we were to literally skip that for the sake of other parts of the tradition, we would have a really difficult time rationally understanding how to connect back to God.
1: I'm so confused
0: how they make pork in a lab. <laughs> in my other life, I'm a food engineer. Um, no. no.
3: I'm having a BLT for lunch. Yeah. <laughs> it, it actually, it, it's, a, it's actually um, one, a good friend is one of the uh, lab techs at uh, and the family made a ton of money going into yeah. the idea. Yeah. That, that, that having been said, um, the, um, the beef and everything is made out of peas. Yeah. With some peat to make it. Look the red. Good. It's red they are working heavily on bacon to be made from a
0: plant-based. It's not actually grown. It's, it's a, yeah. Plant-based bacon. I think it's a, it's
3: a marketing plant. They're using wow. bacon and pork because people
0: of, of like course a, Of course. And beyond, uses, and beyond Meat uses, and Beyond Meat uses uh, like pro- produce. Eats. But Right. But there's this notion of at some point, I mean, if you want to go really sci-fi for a moment, what happens when we can clone? Yeah. What happens when we can successfully clone? Right, exactly. If you clone an animal and it is not born of another animal, is it an animal?
5: Or even, or even, even further than that, don't bother with the animal. Just clone muscle tissue.
0: Take a muscle stem cell. And but now, out. are we cannibals? <laughs> When you came into this morning's Torah, you did not think we were going to go from Pinchas to (laughs) sci-fi. But this is a real question. What is the limitations? This whole part of this portion is limitations. You've gone through and seen what it looks like to act zealously and passionately for God. You've gone through and looked at what it means to stand up and speak out when you think something is wrong and to see change affected. Now you're looking at rules to remember... And how to make sure that we stay within a context that we don't go so far off to one direction that we lose the shape and structure of what we're experiencing to begin with.
2: And how to no, question rules. rules.
0: And how to question rules, yeah.
2: But, but this whole fitness thing is a massive paradox because you have the inheritance of the daughters, you have a person killing two people becoming the high priest. And you have the ultimate question, who will lead
0: the Correct. people
2: upon Moses' death? And, and the issue of why not his son? Why not his son? Why Joshua? And that becomes the balance between...
0: The high priesthood.
2: Defending the people even when they do wrong and commitment to all of these total rules... That so, I think it's it shows the deep flexibility within the container of some boundaries. And what we're arguing about this morning, discussing this morning, are what, what are the boundaries?
0: Correct. Oh, I I want to I want to echo what you said. One hundred percent, we are talking about the flexibility from within the system. There is a container. Shabbat, the Jewish calendar, is the container, right? Here is the structure of our faith. Here are the boundaries. Monotheism is a boundary. When we do these different holidays and why we do them, our boundaries. Now we're wrestling with how to engage in the experience of this faith within those boundaries. And that's a really important distinction that I'm glad you said that I had not said yet, which is that there is a boundary, and the reason it's important to recognize it is it is safe to explore within the boundaries. What happens if we press against and break the boundary is we've actually broken the definition of what we're exploring to begin with. Is it still the Jewish faith if we rid it of the calendar piece? If we let go of Shabbat, how can we be the Jewish people without a notion of Shabbat? Right. So these pieces are the boundaries the very, very furthest points of the container and now inside of it we're looking at how to interact within the system.
2: And how to bring it into contemporary life so it remains relevant and meaningful. And and I think that's what the struggle is about. I think it's the beauty of reconstruction. I mean it's the absolute yep. absolute phenomenally powerful
3: driving force. The freedom to create Boundaries, yeah, and we get to do it in this book, correct? I don't know if anybody else is distressed with this, but the beginning of Pinkhouse. Granted, I shouldn't be talking about the beginning.
0: We're breaking the triennial rules here. I just want to make it clear to anyone. We are going off-roading here, but let's do it. It's my sphere. Yeah. <laughs> it's now the year 2020. We are in Pinchas again. Yes. And,
3: and that's, this is my problem. Um, we uh, have big difficulties with religious zealots from other religions. Christian conservatives and whatever, who uh, bring to bear very draconian answers to the breaking of their rules here or there. Here's Penthouse uh, skewering two people. Uh, no matter what they broke, it doesn't seem necessarily to be reasonable to be killing two people for this. And at the same point, Elevating him to a high priest when he's committed one of the biggest chandas that
0: uh, he's, you
3: know, is one so? of the Ten Commandments. Yeah. So, so I, I don't get it.
0: Okay. So we're going to step a little bit outside of Pinchas to get to the answer, but let's let's start with how many leaders do we have in this Israelite society right now? How many positions of leadership of the top level?
3: High priest Moses, uh, the political and the, um, and the religious.
0: Two, very intentional. Now, wouldn't it be more effective to just have one? Why do we have more than one leader? Because
1: there's only one God.
0: And okay, leaders, great.
1: Leaders, we've got
0: more. Well, now let's go to a little bit more of a human explanation. <laughs> Humans are fallible. Fallible. They are not perfect. And if they're really good at something, bets are they're really bad at something else, right? I know my weaknesses. Let's not make this, this Torah study about listing Daniel's weaknesses. But like, I know for everything that I feel I'm good at, I know something else I struggle with. It's a it's just part of the ex, the human experience. Pinchas understands total devotion. To God. And on the godly side of law, he's kosher. But Pinchas would never have been in Moses' shoes. And there's a reason that Joshua is the person that we end up focusing on. Because you need the character like Joshua, the character like Moses, to worry about the way in which the society functions, the needs of the people, their, their wants, their dreams, their fears, etc. And meanwhile, you need someone like a Pinchas to be just so hyper-focused on the cultic aspects of faith to God. Now, when I say we need, let me make very clear. We are not Israelites anymore. We are Jews. We have rabbis. We have people who are no longer priests. Why? Because that might have been an overzealous profession. That might not, like, we say that we don't have priests because of the third temple. But if you went and asked 100 rabbis, especially liberal rabbis, hey, what do you think of a third temple being built? I don't want a third temple. I don't want to go back to slaughtering pigeons. That sounds awful. I want to pray. I want to use the power of prayer and Torah study to be the replacements of cultic faith. And I want to continue to elevate the psychological and intellectual aspects of our religion. The guy we're studying about is a priest. That's over. And quite frankly, there was a cognitive shift when we move from being a cultic faith to a religion. And the high priest's role was a zealous role. They had to be so hyper-focused. I mean, go back to the story of Aaron's sons when they die by strange fire. There's multiple explanations, but one explanation is they were so excited to do more, give more to God, that God had to be like, you're too zealous. No one said light a fire, relax. Poof, they're gone. So the high priest role is perfect for Pinchas because it is such an intense role that there's a reason we don't have it now. But we do have the Moses role. We do have charismatic leaders. We do have people who think about both God's intention and people's needs at the same time, and so I agree it's uncomfortable to read Pinchas's story, but it makes a lot of sense when you understand the context of Pinchas's future role. And I, I for one, am very glad that we live in 21st century Judaism, and that we don't need that role.
5: But leaving aside the fact that we don't have high priests anymore, you, one of the points you made about having two leaders instead of just the high priest. Yeah. You need you need a in a sense like a a secular leader like Moses to act as a break on the yeah. high priest. And we don't have to go to other religions to look at celibacy. If you look at, you know, where where are the rabbis or the secular were the secular authorities in Israel, for example, when you have, you know, the neighborhoods where they stone the buses and the buses try to go through the neighborhood on Shabbat where are the where are the secular authorities kind of like kind of protecting the more sec the Jews in Israel who decide to be more secular where where are the authorities protecting them from the violence from the ultra ultra orthodox
0: so there is definitely need for continued improvement in the state of Israel, mm-hmm. just like I think we can all agree the need for continued improvement in our own political system at this time. Uh, right. But I will say the Iraq, the Israeli Religious Action Center, which was famously head up for a number of years by Anand Hoffman, mm-hmm. does that exact work. They go to the Supreme Court system in Israel With issues in which civil authority is being, like civil rights are being usurped or eclipsed by religious authority. Mm -hmm. And they've won on, the Supreme Court of Israel is incredible. If you ever go look up the cases and what they hear, they have made some amazingly profound rulings. We don't hear about them because they don't, they're not white noise. It's kind of like our Supreme Court, quite frankly, is there's a certain level of decorum that just stays and it's not going to do well in the media because it's not loud. Same way in Israel. And the Israeli Religious Action Center, as well as a ton of other institutions, are constantly pushing back to make sure that that is not the case. Um, For instance, ten years ago, there was maybe one restaurant open on Shabbat in Jerusalem. And in fact, there's a continued court case about whether or not buses should run on Shabbat. Mm -hmm. And so there is a delicate balance, but... It is supposed to be the Knesset and the Rabbanut that works together. Because that isn't always happening, there are other organizations that step in as well. And go back to our own home. I would love... Oh, no, I wouldn't. That was a joke. If rabbis had total say to do whatever we want. That's not the case, is it? (laughs) Yes. Uh, For those listening, in a couple years when Daniel would like to still work here, that was a joke. Um, (laughs) But but instead, what do we have? We have a check and balance. We have a board. We have a voice for every congregant. We have a congregational meeting. We have in our system a reflection of the Israelite society, that there needs to be a balance between those who are holding our religion and those who are worried about our, our community. Now, the rabbi has a hybrid role. We, we, we do worry for a community beyond just the, the laws of Torah, but it's a it's still we still have that same reflection of having multiple leaders to make sure that decisions aren't made in too much of a vacuum or with tunnel vision. Anyone have any other thoughts for now? I'm like I'm I'm just catching my breath. Yes. I don't
1: want anybody to think I'm being silly about this, but part of this this study is makes interesting conversation and here we are and we might all walk out of here with a different thought on it but at least it's open and we have have this conversation and it helps us maybe focus on part of the Torah that we maybe hadn't focused on before and I think that's as important as whatever conclusion one might as a group come with I'm
0: not being very articulate about that well I'll I'll share with you to go to go, do you wanna no, you, oh, no I'm had just to talk just before. glad that
1: uh, chopped liver now is made out
0: of peas. <laughs> <laughs> well also Israel brought us one glorious creation which is yeah. vegetarian liver. I don't know if you ever had it. It's an egg it's an eggplant and zucchini base and it it tastes just like liver. It Yes, but, but, you know, a little less cholesterol. Uh, yeah, right. I will, I will share with you something that I found that I, I completely skipped over because in the excitement of conversation sometimes we do that, is that question going back to the shofar on Shabbat, the Talmud has an amazing response that I do want to share. There's a, there's a great discussion about why we don't sh- sound the shofar, and also on, on, there's one other thing, what also don't we read on Shabbat of High Holidays? We don't do Avinu Malkinu. We're not supposed to. We're supposed to skip it. Okay. Among other reasons, yes. But the rabbis want to give an explanation that makes a little bit more of a Shabbat-oriented. So they say there's a compelling difference between an ordinary day and Shabbat. And the illustration they use is it's like tying your shoes. If you tie your shoes, left shoe first during the week, on Shabbat... You're supposed to attain a higher level of consciousness that permits you to first remember to tie your right shoe. Rather than that trivial answer, though, it's a perfect example of the larger picture that Shabbat, even the ordinary things, have to be done differently. Because otherwise, we don't remember that Shabbat is special. So things that you, for example, if you are someone who really loves dessert, maybe Shabbat's the day you eat dessert before dinner. Right? Why? Because you're actually engaging in a holier level of Shabbat. You're making it different. Can I right? A what? Can I make that rule? Of course you can. Can I
1: have dessert all day?
0: This is reconstructing Judaism. You just, you just, we started with meat being necessary, and now we're on to babka. Like, I don't even know how we got there. But, but that's exactly right, is this idea of making Shabbat special. Sometimes it's omitting something. Avinu malkenu in the shofar. Other times, it's restructuring. It's just attaining one step level higher of consciousness by not going into autopilot. right? And that's a tricky thing to do because if it takes seven days or whatever to form a habit, it's that much harder to remember once a week to break your habits. right? But that's how you attain a higher level of Shabbat. And what better?
1: The only night of the week that we would have dessert.
0: There you go. And that, and that level—that's the same exact illustration as still having our day of reflection, our day of introspection, without shofar.
4: Why
0: don't we not? Avinu Avina There's, there's two reasons. One is this idea of separating, but the other is the petition. It's a request. Um,
1: Translate it for us. Words of,
0: Eden, well, king of our So king. it's interesting. It, it means "Our Father, Our King." If you re- open a more liberal prayer book, we've done a really good job of recognizing that the limitations of that translation come from gender-specific pieces of the language itself, and it's really saying "Our Parent, Our Ruler," right? Which is a twofold: it's the one who nurtures us and the one that structures our day, uh, and the one who oversees. And so, but in that, what we do is we basically. <coughs> Butter up God, ask of something. Butter up God, ask of something. Oh, awesome. Dad, I love you. Hey, can I borrow the car? Right? That's what we're going with. And so we try to refrain from that kind of thing on Shabbat. That's why we
1: can't drive
0: on Shabbat. Ah, that's exactly right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: My brother passed away on a Saturday morning, and it was Passover. And we were told that it's a very holy time to die.
0: So, so we've crossed into, and we've done it a few times this morning, into rabbinic interpretations of pieces. And if, when you pass is the day that your soul returns to God, what better day to return to God than on a day of, of holiness? Right? than on a day of rest, than on a day of high holiday grandeur, than on a on a biblical proportion holiday to return to God on that day is to say that like there's that much more uh, influence to it. Now, I personally don't really go into spaces like that often because I actually think there is a holiness to death and I don't think it's affected based on when. I think it's affected based on the person and their and their situation specifically. But in playing with the calendar and seeing the power behind these different holidays, there is a tradition of returning to God on such a holy day would be a a very um, beautiful poetic thing.
5: Shabbat
1: is the
0: day. Shabbat, and remember, Hagim is Shabbat.
1: It's that the souls go back
0: to God. Well, so. Well, the, well. First of all, passing is when the soul returns to God. But on Shabbat, the reason you have to to halot, for instance, is that you're having a double portion. You're having one for the physical and one for the spiritual uh, engagement with Shabbat, right? So there is already the notion that you have a double soul on Shabbat to embrace all these different aspects of of what Shabbat has to offer. So. That's where the, the poeticness comes into. Passing on one of these days would allow you to engage in that deeper when you return to God. We have covered a lot of grounds today. Um, this, e- even for me, I think we've, we've covered a lot of ground today. And I just want to bring us back to this, to this ending point as we wrap up, that that's part of the beauty of a parsha like Parsha Pinchas it opens us to recognize that we may be frustrated because we want to go into year one's triennial a little bit more and we'll get there next year too, but that each year we're looking at this, this is a portion that is going to make us look in entirely different directions. And make no mistake, that's very intentional. We are getting towards the end of this book. We are almost done with numbers. We have a few portions left. And then what happens? We go into our second telling with Deuteronomy. So we've got to get through these different concepts and notions and frameworks in the way we think to make sure we're prepared to begin the final piece of our yearly learning of Torah. And so I, for one, am a big fan of this portion. And I I, uh, really appreciated getting what I consider to be the hardest of the three years, because you really have to look at something that we all know. We know the high holidays. Can you believe we talked about Rosh Hashanah? Again, two months before era of Rosh Hashanah. And we're already talking about it again. And that's because it's going to be this process that takes us a while to get there. And to know that we're ready for the holidays, we have to know we've covered the different subjects in our texts. And we've prepared ourselves for this level of intellectual thinking. So I appreciate everyone's engagement in Torah study this morning. I hope that everyone got something uh, meaningful and interesting, at the very least a conversation starter. And I wish you all a Shabbat Shalom.